cost in terms of uh, cocaine is is derived from the uh, the transport. I've been arrested for drug use many times, having lots of amounts of drugs on us, and we've just had to pay bribe. Sometimes it's hundreds of rands, sometimes it's thousands of rands. Yeah. So if you get caught in South Africa, I don't know if it's the same for the Bulgarians that are caught, but like, when we get caught, all we know is that, cool, I just have to pay these guys off and I can go home tonight. Yeah. The back of the ship was converted to an armored container uh, that can shrug off a rocket-propelled grenade attack, basically. Since the dawn of international trade, South Africa's shores have acted as a halfway point for those plying their wares, a place to restock, trade, and move on. Not much has changed for drug cartels around the world, except perhaps what is being traded. Welcome to The Cape of Cocaine, a serial podcast production by Arena Holdings, which investigates the growing reach of the Bulgarian Mafia's cocaine routes into South Africa. Join us as we pull apart the tangled web of underhand dealings, intricate police investigations, violent threats, and unprecedented court cases which have accompanied the expansion of the Bulgarian Mafia's operations into South Africa. This is Episode 3, so if you are new to the show, please go back to Episode 1 and catch up on what you've missed. We aren't going anywhere and we'll be right here when you are ready. This week we unearth the inner workings of South Africa's Bulgarian underworld, unmask the key figure Ivanov and look into how the Bulgarian Mafia came to our shores and what they had been doing here until their eventual capture in 2021. I'm your host Oren Singh. To make sure you never miss an episode of Cape of Cocaine, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like our show, take a second to leave us a review on your streaming app. This will help more people find and enjoy the show. February is late summer in Cape Town, and also the hottest month here. Tourists in bikinis languish on Cape Town's beaches and boys with chiseled abs play volleyball on the white sand. <laughs> when the sun approaches the western horizon, sun-kissed bodies recline in deck chairs and fill the nightclubs along Camps Bay Boulevard, a place which is the literal embodiment of a materialistic heaven on earth. That is why the makers of the Netflix show Black Mirror chose Camps Bay when they looked for filming locations for an episode in which two characters live in a digital paradise of eternal youth and bliss and where your actions have no consequences. Behind the sunbathers, the western ridges of Table Mountain reach to the heavens like a kilometer-high wall insulating a paradise for the super-rich from the poverty of much of the rest of South Africa. The champagne flows as the African sun sets between palm trees, merging with the turquoise waters of the Atlantic Ocean. The rhythm from the music and the alcohol, some of which comes from South Africa's world-famous wine farms, cocktails and method cap classique, 
is not all that's on offer. For some, an adventure on the southern tip of Africa offers other delights. fashionably dressed drug dealer stands nearby the entrance to one of the clubs. The sales pitch is easy. I, I only got a pure cocaine for you, my sister. Pure Calabese cocaine for 500. For 500, you'll love it. He's selling the perfect product. It seems a bit much for one gram of fine white powder. But if you're paying in dollars, pounds or euros, it's quite affordable. Those who have done cocaine will tell you that it's the best feeling they've ever had. I think that cocaine in particular does help with a few things. And in terms of like a confidence that us as millennials, Gen Zs, the people beyond have struggled to access, it does give us that push and pull, even if it is momentary. But I think that as a generation, especially when I reiterate community, we know why that is. And we know how we're operating in these ways and using these things in these safe spaces and how when it's contained, it can be like transcendental. It has its benefits, but if abused, obviously, like anything can be bad. And um, it's just about like regulation, you know, and like um, um, supervision. What I've discovered in the last year, two years, I didn't know coke was a thing, like a, it's like a trend. And I've been in Cape Town for 20 years. And I've discovered like, you know, it's like a norm. I think people should stop that shit because it's not a good idea at all. Um, but my general idea of it is that it's uh, pretty common and pretty like chilled okay. in Cape Town especially. Like the amount of people who have done cocaine in my bathroom, <laughs> I couldn't even count on two hands. Um, just because you're going out, you're gonna have people doing molly and cocaine. It's just the way that it goes. I've been arrested for drug use many times, having lots of amounts of drugs on us. And we've just had to pay bribe. Sometimes it's hundreds of rand, sometimes it's thousands of rand. Yeah. So if you get caught in South Africa, I don't know if it's the same for the Bulgarians that are caught, but like, when we get caught, all we know is that, cool, I just have to pay these guys off and I can go home tonight. Yeah. Many can't go a day without it. For those addicted to cocaine, it's an expensive habit. It's a habit that comes with its own dangers. A cocaine overdose can be deadly. The same things that make it a party drug can push the body to the extreme. It can cause irregular heart rhythm and cardiac arrest or even a stroke. It's February again, but in 2021, there are no tourists. The global COVID-19 pandemic has all but killed Cape Town's tourism industry and nightlife. And with it, tens of thousands of jobs. From his luxury apartment at the Majorca Island Club Hotel in Cape Town's Century City, Asen Ivanov, the man who provides cocaine to the Nigerian drug dealing syndicates in Cape Town, has a view of the Atlantic seaboard where his drugs are sold. 
balding and sporting a comfortable belly and with spectacles on his clean-shaven face. Ivanov looks more like an antique shop owner. At 51 years old, he has no interest in Cape Town's nightclubs anymore. They are for the kids whose money he's raking in. People he's done business with reckon he's a really nice guy and they have only good things to say about him. But they didn't know he was a drug dealer. They didn't even know his real name. Mm-hmm. And always was uh, talking to me as Alex Novak, yeah. You know, it was it was good to me always, actually. You know, uh, I have nothing wrong to say about him, but obviously what he was doing was obviously bad and illegal. And yeah, no, But to me, he was always a good person. The Bulgarian community in Cape Town say they didn't know him either. From his luxury apartment in February 2021, Ivanov is not worried about the pandemic that is strangling the economy. In a few days, he has another 600 million rand shipment of cocaine coming into the country. A whole ton of cocaine compressed into 1,000 bricks for easy distribution. Ivanov has his eyes set on the land of milk and honey for cocaine smugglers, Australia. Jason Eli, a drug expert for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, says cocaine in Australia is so expensive because this major cocaine consumer market is literally on the other side of the world from South America. Does cocaine in Australia fetch the highest price, like globally? Well, the, the, the price of cocaine is determined by the distance which it has to travel to get to market. Mm. So the greater the distance, the greater the investment, the greater the price at the end. So Australia is probably one of the furthest markets away from the source point. Yeah, makes sense. So I would say that that uh, you're looking at. I mean, price is also determined obviously by the difficulty it is to get into a market and, mm-hmm. and a number of other things. But but certainly a lot of the value in uh, or a lot of the the cost uh, in terms of uh, cocaine is is derived from the uh, the transport right from the from the distance it has to travel from source to um, to market. Mm. In a few days, the shipment Ivanov is expecting to go and get from Soldana Bay Harbour will earn him a 12-year stay inside a maximum security South African prison. But while he stares out of the window in his apartment at the Majorca Hotel, Ivanov stands atop a multi-billion dollar business empire built on threats, bribes, fraud and a mountain of cocaine. Ivanov is the operations manager of the Bulgarian cocaine syndicate. He keeps track of the fleet of ships they were running from Brazil to Australia. Cocaine is born in the jungles of South America, uh, specifically in the Andes mountain range area, in countries like Bolivia, Colombia, Venezuela. A lot of people might know Colombia because of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel, and then also later the Cali cartel both very, very powerful cocaine drug syndicates. And basically syndicates like Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel today, they pick these leaves from a tree that grows above a certain altitude in the Andes Mountains. And they turn these leaves into a paste. The paste is then mixed with chemicals in illegal clandestine labs in the mountains and in the jungles and from there the paste is dried 
and you get this white powdery substance, very fine white powder. Now that's pure cocaine. That cocaine then gets packed into one kilogram bricks and wrapped tightly with plastic. In some cases, other things are used uh, to try and hide the, the scent of cocaine from sniffer dogs and other means of detection. From there, it's uh, trafficked to port cities around South America. Our cocaine that we got at Saldana Bay came from a, a Brazilian port city. The cartel took it there. It was picked up there and it was then taken on a ship out to sea just off the coast of South Africa where another ship, the Windward, picked the cocaine up and took it to the shores of South Africa. From the shores of South Africa, some of the cocaine will go into the South African market, but the syndicates don't want to give a lot of cocaine to the South African market because the prices aren't that high here. Uh, where you want to get the cocaine is to Europe or Australia. Australia is very far away from the jungles of South America and uh, you get a premium uh, for the cocaine that you're able to ship there. In some cases, the syndicates will cut the cocaine up and resell it in South Africa. What we mean by cutting the cocaine up is that they will put some sort of cutting agent into it. In some cases, it'll be emulsifier or sort of a, a baby formula. It could be baking soda. There's a lot of substances that you can use to thin cocaine out and most of the cocaine that users in the streets of Cape Town use or in the nightclubs use is not pure cocaine. You'll pay a lot of money for pure cocaine if you're buying it off the street and it's very likely that you won't know the right people to get pure cocaine in any case. The pure cocaine is you know, mostly shipped then from South Africa it goes on to on the roads here, taken to either Durban Harbour or Port Elizabeth, Kebeja, from where it gets loaded onto another ship. That ship sails to the territorial waters of Australia, probably does another sea drop there, and eventually ends up with uh, the Australian biker gangs, the 1% gangs as they refer to them. And those gangs then distribute the cocaine in Australia uh, to the nightclubs and to the big user community over there. So that is more or less the life cycle of cocaine. His ships are crewed by sailors from Myanmar who sailed all over the world transporting drugs. In February 2021, he was on top of the world practically untouchable. However, it's not easy to get to the top and February was not Ivanov's first time planning a massive drug smuggling operation in South Africa. To understand who the Bulgarian mafia in South Africa is and how they are linked to the second largest drug bust in South Africa's history, we have to go back to 2014 to a luxury villa in the posh Cape Town suburb of Durbanville. Durbanville is wine country. The streets of the suburb are lined with 100-year-old trees. Its residents live a tranquil existence in old Cape Dutch-style houses 
with magnificent gardens. On 24 February 2014, Warrant Officer Johan Kombrink, a member of the Hawks, South Africa's underfunded, understaffed and under-equipped version of the FBI, received information that drugs were being manufactured in the garage of a mansion in an upmarket housing estate in Durbanville. That night, he parked his car opposite the Tuscan Villa-style house and observed strange activities happening on the property. Outside, he saw a Toyota Hilux, which his informant said was being used to transport powder used to manufacture Mandrax to the premises. The garage door was partially open and inside Kombrink could see activity taking place. The garage windows were covered with plastic bags. He then saw a figure exiting the luxury villa. It was a man wearing a white hazmat suit and a face mask similar to that used by Kombrink and his team to protect them from hazardous substances when they destroyed clandestine drug labs. Kombrink would later testify in the Western Cape High Court that the air was full of the stench of sulphur, which was released during the Mandrax manufacturing process. Mandrax, or methicolone, is a drug used to bring you down from the extreme excitement and anxiety you experience when smoking crystal meth. And in South Africa, Mandrax is synonymous with crystal meth use and dealing. The next day, Kombrink and his colleagues went back to the house with a search warrant. He knocked on the front door, and guess who opened it? Asen Ivanov. That's right, the same Ivanov who would be caught with a ton of cocaine six years later. But when Kombrink introduced himself to Ivanov in 2014, he had no idea that he was meeting one of South Africa's biggest drug dealers. Ivanov told him he was in charge of the house and he allowed Kombrink and his men inside. In the living room, two men introduced themselves to Kombrink. They were Kirill Kirillov and Asen Chechlarov. Chechlarov was later arrested in Peru for smuggling 200 million US dollars worth of cocaine in 2018. In the garage, Kombrink found a two meter deep hidden channel which was being dug into the floor. He asked Ivanov what the hole in the ground was used for. And Ivanov told him they were building a jacuzzi. Yeah, right, thought Kombrink. The panels which they were building into the walls of the channel indicated that Ivanov was lying. When they searched the house, they found bags full of cash, dollars, euros, and stacks of rands. In the bedrooms, in the living room, and also in an Audi Q7 standing in the driveway. Ivanov told Kombrink he was the owner of the Audi and gave him the keys. But the Audi never belonged to him. In fact, vehicle ownership records show the car quickly changed ownership between another three Bulgarians in less than six months. At the time Ivanov claimed the car belonged to him, it was actually owned by Momchil Krastev Pavlov, a Cape Town car dealer with a criminal history and believed to be the middleman in the South African arm of the Bulgarian Mafia. We checked the vehicle ownership of the Audi and we found out that it was registered to Momchil Pavlov on 16 January 2014 and was in his name at the time that Asen Ivanov was using it. I believe this was during the planning stages of this alleged drug operation because the flight records during this period also paint uh, a telling picture. 
Manila. Hi, I'm looking for uh, Mum Chil. Okay. You're not interested. Um, well, nah. I mean, there's one thing that uh, that was very interesting, which I found in my research, uh, which involves uh, you. Really? Yes. So there was a there was a vehicle which he said um, belonged to him at that time. It was an Audi Q7. Are you still there? I have, uh, yeah, I'm sure, but I'm not sure what you took at which car is it. I was, I've dealt with so many cars. I was a car dealer, and I'm still a car dealership. And you know how many cars I've sold? It's possible that it wasn't transferred all time or something like that, but I actually I haven't got a clue which car and who you're talking about. Well, it wasn't never transferred to his name. I've sold over 500 cars for the last five years. So do you think I'll remember all of them? Are you a vehicle salesman? Yes. Okay, what uh, what company do you own? And why, why is all that? I said to you, I'm not interested of all of that. I'm not interested in your interview, I don't. You're not interested? No. While doing research for this podcast, Aaron found that Pavlov had obtained a fake South African identity document under the Afrikaans name Gerrit Johnson. According to the South African Home Affairs Department, Gerrit Johnson is a fake identity linked to Pavlov's fingerprints on the Home Affairs database. The department said they have reported the alleged fraud to police. The Bulgarian syndicate appears to have ready access to fake identity documents in South Africa and neighboring African countries, which allows them to travel freely undetected. Bulgarians suspected of being part of the crime syndicate started flying into South Africa in late January 2014, including Kirill Kirilov and Asen Chechlarov, the two guys who Kombrink found in the house during the raid. So Kirill Kirilov and Asen Chechlarov flew in together on a flight on 20 January 2014. But what I found is a very strange coincidence, is that two days earlier, on 18 January 2014, Borislav Atanasov and his business partner, Alexander Torbov, who by that time had been implicated in illicit activities around the world, also arrived in South Africa. That's right. Borislav Atanasov one of the Bulgarians arrested during the Soldana Bay drug bust in March of 2021, flew to South Africa with his business partner, who, in 2014, had already been implicated in crimes in Europe, just as Ivanov was about to start building an alleged drug lab. The link between the Soldana Bay drug bust suspects and Pavlov connects the dots between a massive international drug syndicate and a vast alleged criminal network implicated in large-scale ATM card skimming, abalone poaching, and even allegations of human trafficking and diamond smuggling, and which has operated out of Cape Town, Durban, and Gauteng since the late 1990s. The Hawks never found any drugs at the Durbanville house, which is why Ivanov remained a free man for another six years. Perhaps they pounced too early, but the investigation revealed details which, in hindsight, illuminating. The Durbanville house was bought with diamonds brought into the country by a Slovakian woman named Jana Kipkalova. She claimed that during a visit to Cape Town in July 2013, she decided she wanted to buy a house as an investment. Ivanov, with whom she was friendly, then introduced her to a jeweler in Seapoint, 
where she could sell four diamonds she brought into South Africa as part of a bracelet. She bought the 3.175 million rand house using the proceeds of the diamonds, but the money was paid over by the jewelry store owner directly to the estate agent, who was also the conveyancing attorney for the sale. The Hawks found all of this, including the fact that the money was paid in several transactions into the attorney's trust account, very dodgy. Even more so when they interviewed one of the South Africans whose personal information they found among the piles of documents they seized at the Belleville property. One of the Hawks officers would later go and interview a South African man, John Adams, from Mitchell's Plain, who worked for Ivanov. But Adams didn't know him as Asen Ivanov. He knew him as Alex Novak, one of the several aliases used by Ivanov to conduct business all around the world. The use of aliases appears to be a tool favored by the Bulgarian underworld for avoiding detection. Adams told a Hawks investigator that he worked on a ship owned by Ivanov called the Defiant. The Defiant is no ordinary ship. The Defiant operates in the Red Sea off the coast of Sudan in North Africa. The back of the ship was converted to an armored container uh, that can shrug off a rocket-propelled grenade attack, basically. The ship is a floating armory for mercenaries fighting Somali pirates. Uh, it's a place where mercenaries can restock their guns and ammunition. Adams, who worked as an engineer on the ship, said Ivanov usually carried a bag of cash with him and conducted most of his business in cash including paying his crew's salary. All of this evidence was backing up credible information the Hawks had received from the International Criminal Police Organization, or Interpol for short, that Ivanov was planning something in South Africa. Besides the house which Kipkalov had bought and was allowing him to use, Ivanov also rented a house at the Bulgarian Mafia's favoured importing hub of Saldana Bay, in April 2013. He paid the house's Pretoria owners 114,400 Rand, the full year's rental lease amount, up to the end of May 2014, up front. He used a Greek passport with a different name as the reference document to sign the lease. He also installed roller shutters over the windows at the Durbanville house at a cost of 73,000 Rand. Between 2012 and February 2015, Ivanov had been entering and leaving South Africa regularly. It remains a mystery whether during this time Ivanov and his syndicate had been conducting drug runs undetected. The Soldana Bay seizure would ultimately cut Ivanov's jet setting short. You'll recall that in episode 1, we focused on the capture of the Windward and a ton of cocaine contained on board. That very seizure would lead police to Ivanov's door and lead him into handcuffs. Ivanov didn't apply for bail. He was done for and he knew it. He would enter into a plea and sentencing agreement with the state that would see him receiving a 12-year jail sentence. Hawks investigator Detective Constable Mandy Karlser would later tell the High Court that she believed that Ivanov had connections beyond his Bulgarian counterparts owing to his ability to get other foreign nationals to sign for his interests to smokescreen his own activities. 
I have reasonable grounds for believing that this benefits the first respondent in that such connection would facilitate and make it easy for him to easily launder his proceeds of crime, irrespective of the origins thereof, without easy detection, as at first glance his nominees may be found to be far and unrelated to him. Even as far back as 2014, Ivanov was linked by Interpol to an international drug operation. Ivanov would later try to sell the Durbanville house on behalf of Kipkalova using another alias. In 2017, the High Court ordered that the 2.6 million rand seized from Ivanov was the proceeds of crime and granted an order for the money to be forfeited to the state. It is reasonable to believe that in 2014, the Hawks caught Ivanov laying the foundations of a massive drug operation. The evidence showed that something was brewing. And indeed, it was. You see, the party paradise these cocaine lords were building was too good to be true. In 2016, a war started for control of Cape Town's nightclubs, the places where Ivanov's product was sold. The parties fueled by it would soon be broken up by shootings, stabbings and fights. There would be blood and the Bulgarians would bleed too. Join us next week for our final episode in this four-part series. Next week, we will look into the assassination of a seemingly sweet young couple and answer the question, why has the Bulgarian Mafia decided to set down roots in South Africa? And what are the implications for our country? For free future episodes, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like our show, take a second to leave us a review on your streaming app. This will help more people find and enjoy the show. Cape of Cocaine is brought to you by Arena Holdings and Times Live. This podcast is narrated by Aaron Singh. Investigations for this podcast were conducted by senior investigations reporter Aaron Hyman. Script writing by Aaron Hyman. Sound design and editing by Paige Muller. Executive production by Nikki Gulish and Diane Hawker. Published by the Sunday Times and Times Live Investigations.